0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and
1: more. It's described as the Aussie game that turns your living room into a sheep station.
2: Young Jack's looking good at emu Plains, playing
3: squatter rather well. He's improved the land, got a new stud ram and a lot of sheep to sell. Mum and sis aren't far behind, their land's got irrigation. But poor old dad, it's all gone wrong at his Mount Mitchell station. First the drought, then the floods and rain. But he still loves playing squatter, the great Australian
4: game.
1: Today we hear why squatter has stood the test of time despite the saturated board game market. And burials put on hold in a northern Victorian town because of flooding. I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia Wide coming to you from Whadjuk country, Perth. But first to Wollongong, where 200 miners are looking for work after the closure of the Russell Vale mine. The underground coal mine has come under scrutiny from the New South Wales mining watchdog and was placed under prohibition order after a series of underground fires. Mining unions say they're determined to ensure workers receive their full entitlements. Kelly Fuller has this story from the mine gate. There was no good
0: news for workers when they were summoned to a meeting in the Russellvale mine car park.
1: Uh, the place is closing,
3: they're shutting up shop and going to get all, everything out and they're gone. Closing the mine and that's about it. I
5: think we've all been made redundant,
0: now. So. Staff say they were told the Indian parent company, Jindal Steel & Power, no longer wanted to put money into the operation. Paul Jeremy Jenko from the Colleries and Staff Officials Association says it's a sad outcome for the Illawarra.
4: There's a lot of history in this
6: collery. A lot of uh, people and their families have worked here. Um, it's a great loss
0: to the community. It's also not the first time the mine has been closed. It's
5: my second stint, so I got put off in 2014, so I've done 10 years last time. i yeah, just done another two years.
0: The New South Wales Resources Regulator placed a prohibition order on the mine last month over serious safety concerns involving five underground fires. The mine's operator has not responded to requests for comment, but Paul Jeremy Jenko says they have received assurances on and conditions.
6: Our members, that is our major concern, they're assured that we will receive our entitlements. Our major concern at the moment is that they meet those moral and legal requirements to actually follow the correct process and pay us what we're owed and due as per law.
0: Miner Brett Boland says his colleagues are already looking for work elsewhere.
6: Um, local contractors have interviewed 150 potential employees this week, so everybody's out there looking for something, um and whether it be locally, on upon our guys upon Queensland.
0: Paul Jamajenko says miners need better help with employment options.
6: Unfortunately mining doesn't really retrain their staff well. Places close, they think, oh, well, you're a coal miner, you'll get another job elsewhere. Uh, So there needs to be a better process to retrain, reskill people. Uh, We have to go through that process to see what is available. But realistically, most of of us have to put food on the table.
7: have families to look after.
0: Another key union on site, the Mining and Energy Union, is urging the New South Wales government to find a solution that will keep the mine open. But Environment Group Lock the Gate says that would be a disaster.
5: I think it would be a big mistake to encourage another operator to take over those mines. You know, whilst it's difficult for workers, it's, it's obviously good news for the global fight to preserve a safe climate. So, You know, this is inevitable. This is going to happen more and more as the global economy changes.
0: That's Lock the Gates New South Wales coordinator Nick Clyde. He says the closure is welcome and all efforts should now be focused on rehabilitating the site which sits under Sydney's water catchment.
5: The New South Wales taxpayer should not be picking up the bill. So there's a question mark now about how much money the New South Wales government has collected in bonds um, and the true cost of closing the mine site, rehabilitating it.
1: Lock the Gates, New South Wales coordinator, Nick Clyde, speaking to our reporter, Kelly Fuller. You're listening to ABC Australia Wide. Now let's head to Kerrang in northern Victoria, a rural town situated on the banks of the River Loddon. Kerrang is no stranger to floods. In 2011 and 2022, the Loddon River breached its banks, putting the town under water. Unfortunately, this year kicked off with another flood, but this time the rain inundated the town cemetery, forcing the Cemetery Trust to pause burials. Andrew Kelso has been covering this story and he joins me now. Andrew, although Kerrang is no stranger to flooding, the Cemetery Trust has never stopped burials before. Can you tell me a bit more about the floods themselves? What was unique about them?
3: Good evening, Sinead. Yeah, it was a, a terrible situation there early in January. As you said, Kerrang has uh, fallen victim to flooding and inundation in the past, partly because it's right near the banks of two rivers, the Loddon River and and the Pyramid Creek, and they do affect it from both sides. What happened in January and late December was a little bit different because it wasn't so much a river flood as the fact they just had a whole lot of rain in the town itself. There were reports of, you know, several inches of rain falling uh, right in the town and, as you said, on the cemetery grounds. But there are other, there are two other issues that caused it to be particularly bad during that period. Now, firstly, there is a sort of a levee around the town, which is what protects it from river flooding. Um, but because that was, that was in place, when the rain fell, it almost sort of created a bit of a bowl situation, a resident said, where the water was sort of stuck in town. Normally, there's storm drains and there's pumps that can get the water out and it's okay. But what we've heard is that, um, firstly, there was is- there are issues with council stormwater drains, and council have said that that is an issue that they're working through, and um, and they are, and they're looking to you know put a lot of money into to, to sort of making those storm drains more you know more able to cope with greater inundations of rain. But in early January, Sinead, there was just too much rain, and those storm uh, storm drains were overflowing. And so that they weren't able, the water wasn't able to get away through mm. that, so it flowed to the cemetery. The other thing that happened is the pumps, there was a power outage and the pumps didn't work either. So essentially you had, if you pardon the expression, you had this perfect storm where there was rain actually falling in the town itself and then there wasn't really any way to get out of it and ultimately where the rain ended up was on the lawn of the Kerrang
1: Cemetery. So this perfect storm of events, then when staff that attempted to dig a grave into what was very sodden earth from what you're describing... What happened then? They had one
3: funeral, which I believe couldn't go ahead. And then after that, they tried digging a grave when there had been a few days without rain and it actually collapsed um, and no one was hurt and it was you know nothing actually happened. But it was just proof that the grave was so sodden and the earth is so wet that it just wasn't possible. As um, I spoke to the Kerrang Cemetery Trust and they said that, you know, they said you can't dig a hole in water. They said it's just too just too wet. And they also said that they they have shoring that they can put around the sides of the grave, but uh, that then sort of creates other issues. There's then holes near the grave. And it wasn't just an issue with the grave itself collapsing. There were also safety issues with uh, people that might be attending a burial at the cemetery.
1: Well, let's hear, you spoke to the Cemetery Trust Vice Chairman, Dale Trevorrow. Let's have a listen to what he had to say.
2: And when we're trying to uh, dig someone's grave at at 2.4, we have issues with Water, water table, wet, wet clay, sloppy ground uh, because of the water in the bottom of the hole. And then we have issues with, with uh, cave-ins, et cetera, or collapses within the grave.
1: That's Kerrang! Cemetery Trust Vice Chairman Dale Trevorrow. It must have been quite a difficult decision for the Trust to decide to pause burials. Did they talk about that, what was involved in terms of weighing up all of the different things that were going on?
3: Indeed, yeah, so this was a, a big decision they made, and it was something that uh, they they did with a lot of uh, with a lot of consideration because apart from just the you know obviously the the need to keep having funerals and the need to you know funerals aren 't something you can easily postpone, and obviously something you can 't predict, um, but they they obviously wanted to keep holding it and wanted to return to normal, but they just saw that there was it was just too hard when that grave collapsed, and when they saw that it was too hard to dig a grave in the soil, they realized it was the decision that they had to make. And they also wanted to preserve the dignity of those families and anyone, and also the people that had been buried there, Sinead too, that they wanted to make sure that, you know, that the, the conditions were perfect and that people could have a normal burial. So it wasn't just about safety and it wasn't just about the practicalities of being able to dig in the ground. There was also just a sense that they wanted it to be okay. They have since returned to um, starting to hold burials, but under slightly strict conditions, in that they only are holding, they've told the and all the funeral directors that they work with that they're only holding one funeral a day and not before eleven thirty. The reason being that they want to give time for the ground to dry out in the morning and um, and also to uh, to for them to be able to assess it to make sure the grave is in an okay condition to be dug. But they really they really, as you said, they 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 wanted to make sure that the grave was safe and not just the grave itself, but the area around it, so that people can go there and, and mourners can take part. And, uh, and have their burial without a risk of, of the grave falling in or just having to walk over sodden ground. There's some extraordinary photos that uh, they sent to us of the cemetery on the day that it flooded, and there's actually sort of tombstones or there's actually head, headstones for that lawn cemetery, the graves there, actually poking through the water. So it was, it was parts of it were completely underwater and it, it wouldn't have been possible at all to hold, to hold funerals.
1: Like you said, it was certainly the perfect storm. Andrew Kelso in Horsham, thanks very much for talking to Australia Wide.
3: Thank you, Shanaide. You're listening to
6: Australia Wide. On ABC Radio.
1: Just a warning, this next story contains discussion of self-harm and suicide. Today marks five years since the release of findings of a large-scale inquest into the suicide deaths of 13 children and young people in remote northern Australia. It was triggered by the death of a 10-year-old girl who took her own life in a small bush community in the Kimberley region. The coroner made a lot of recommendations about how children in remote areas could be better supported and kept safe. So five years on, has anything changed? Reporter Erin Park has been finding out.
8: It's been five years since the issue of youth suicide came under the spotlight with a large-scale inquest into 13 deaths in the Kimberley region. Those who died were aged 10 to 23 years of age. All were Indigenous, all lived in small towns and bush communities in one of the most remote corners of the country. Coroner Fogliani described the deaths as profoundly tragic and shaped by the crushing effects of intergenerational trauma and poverty. Most of those who died had been exposed to violence and alcohol abuse in childhood, and six were believed to have been sexually abused. At the time, the WA government promised a comprehensive response to the coroner's recommendations, including annual updates on their implementation. It has failed to do this. Nothing has been published since 2021. But a statement from the Office of Premier Roger Cook says most of the recommendations have been completed or are well-progressed. Jacqueline McGowan-Jones, who's been Children's Commissioner for two years and has Indigenous heritage herself, says she believes things are getting better for children in remote areas, but change isn't happening quickly enough.
0: Our kids have got trauma, we've got mental health issues, and we need to be responsive and find the right programs and supports for kids to access. Our kids don't ring Lifeline they don't ring Kids Helpline, or if they do, they might be on hold for a very long period of time.
8: Do you think things are better now than they were five years ago?
0: Oh, look, I think they're better than they were two years ago. I think we do make incremental steps. Nonetheless, as the problem increases, that means so does the investment need to increase.
8: Up-to-date figures aren't available for suicide rates in the Kimberley region, but nationally, the number of children taking their own lives has increased in recent years. Tony Wajai skeen is a Kimberley
7: kid through and through. I know as a Kimberley Aboriginal young person myself growing up, life isn't black and white and life isn't rosy and posy. And what we might think is the norm growing up is the total opposite for a lot of young people maybe growing up in other parts of this country. The 28-year-old was one of hundreds
8: of local people who gave evidence at the inquest, and she continues to advocate for the needs of young people in the region on several government committees. She says
7: decision-makers still aren't listening to the needs of local communities. One of the solutions that I see is that if you come to the Kimberley region, any government department or anybody, and you want to do things to do with young people, we need to be talking to the young people of that community, you know, but real solid engagement and around, okay, what's the issue? What's your idea? How do we turn this idea into a program that's for young people?
8: The WA government said in a statement that it is committed to working in partnership with local Aboriginal organisations. And as Tony Wadjai-Skeen points out, the local community, local
7: families, also need to look within. How are we taught positive life coping mechanisms for other families without disadvantage or dysfunction? That's taught, you know, how do you deal with a problem but if that's not around us, then it's really
1: hard for us to navigate that. Kimberley community leader Tony Wajai Skeen, speaking there with our reporter in Broome, Erin Park.
0: ABC Australia Wide.
1: Like many regional towns in Australia, Bordertown in South Australia's southeast is short on housing making it difficult for the many Filipino and Pacific migrants working at its large abattoir to find a place to stay. As a result, migrants often find themselves living in cramped shared houses to save money so they can send dollars back home. But a new op shop, Cum Café, is offering respite with free food and friendly conversation, as Eugène Beauvoir reports.
6: When Serena Ronga moved from Fiji to the South Australian town of Bordertown to work at the local abattoir, she was surprised just how cold it was.
7: Back at home, we live in tropical countries, so first time we have, when we landed, we have winters, so we needed clothes. So
6: Serena went to the local op shop to stock up on warm, affordable clothing.
7: The op shop was the only place we come for shopping because we have very cheap stuff they sell in and it was affordable to us because we came here to work and we need money to send back home also so we need to budget our money and the op shop was the only option we can come and yeah buy stuff
6: Serena says houses are hard to come by in bordertown and they're expensive to rent she shares a house with other Fijian migrants but she says it's quite cramped. After years of working as a missionary in India, Marguerite Diment moved to border town with her husband, who was originally from the local area.
9: We have many immigrants here, and all they have is a bed. You know, They might share a room with three, two or three others. So that that's hard. And the extra hard thing for them is many have left families behind, like spouses and kids. So there's a lot of loneliness, even though they are married and have kids, but they work here to provide for their family at home. So they could go out to a cafe, but they prefer to send the money to help their family overseas because money there does so much more, right?
6: Margreet was the manager of the Salvo's Op Shop in Bordertown until it closed last year. While working there, she dreamt of having a space for people to chat with volunteers over a free coffee and cake. She's now set up a new op-shop called The Hive, adding a cafe where food bank parcels are available for those in need.
9: Like it's a big step to go to the council, especially if you're a local. And for many people it's a big step to step into a church. So we just wanted a place, you know, that's easy entrance, free coffee if you want with a bit of cake for free if you want and then um, the food bank's there for those who need it.
6: Locals are also encouraged to come in for a chat with people they don't know, like newcomers to town. It's also proven useful for people like Bella Harkin, who has anxiety and bipolar disorder.
1: Food's so expensive these days, I've been having trouble buying my two weeks' worth of shopping. So, um, But, yeah, no, it's good to have these places so you can come in and have a chat with people if you need someone to talk to. Back in my day, they didn't have anything. And I was alone. So I come here to chat to some of my people friends here.
6: My hopes hosts to expand opening times in the future and make the cafe accessible to people with a disability.
9: Some days are quite, quite quiet. Other days are, you know,
1: we're a hive of activity. <laughs> Marguerite Diamond, ending that story there from Eugene Beauvoir at the Hive Up Shop in Bordertown in South Australia. If you've ever yelled out, oh no, Rufus the Ram has died around the family dining table... You'd know the board game, Squatter. Launched at the Royal Melbourne Show in 1962, the sheep farming game gave players an insight into the highs and lows of earning a living on the land. And it is still one of the most successful Australian board games of all time. Squatter caught our reporter Conor Burke's eye when he was away on holidays. And because he's born in London, the rural game was an education for him. Let's hear what he found out.
4: It was over Christmas that I first spotted it. Stuck in an Airbnb on a rainy day on the Victorian coast, I found Squatter at the top of a dusty pile of old board games. The cover caught my eye. I didn't know what a Squatter was for a start, but this old worn copy featured a cowboy on horseback guiding a flock of sheep and piqued my interest. My London brain couldn't quite compute a board game about sheep farming, but when I started to investigate, I found out that this unique and niche piece of Australiana started as a side hustle a way for a travelling salesman to get home to his family. But it turned into a love letter to the land, an educational tool and one of the most successful Australian board games of all time. Its inventor was Bob Lloyd, a city lad from Melbourne who gained a deep connection to rural life, working as a farmhand on his in-law's property in Locke, South Gippsland. Bob, who died in 2019, is remembered by his son Richard as a fun-loving bloke, a dreamer who loved the latest gadgets and toys.
5: Dad was um, fun loving. There was a couple of things I mentioned earlier that he used to spend a lot of time away from home when I was little. Mm. Every time that he came home, he brought us something, and then every now and again, he'd bring something like he might have seen a novel toy. And on one occasion, uh, he brought back a toy and when you wound it up, it had suction caps on it and it walked up the wall and across the ceiling and down the other wall. And, um, like, we had fun with it, but I think Dad had more fun watching it do that than we did. In
4: 1956, Bob was on the road working, desperate to find a way to support his family and come home to them full-time. A man of faith, he prayed for inspiration. And driving through the Wimmera region in Western Victoria one day, he looked out the window and noticed the sheep grazing in the paddocks. And the thought suddenly came to him, Richard says.
5: And I was six years old when he actually came home with with the idea for Squatter. Over the next few years, um, I can remember Dad preparing the prototype. I can remember him sitting there with a gem razor blade and a, uh, a ruler, a wooden ruler. And uh, on, the, on the squatter board, the, uh, each property is divided up into paddocks. And on his prototype, he'd cut out strips of cardboard that were possibly about one millimetre wide, and he glued those down onto his prototype board. That was the um, meticulous manner in which he sort of put together the board. That was done over a two-year period. So 1956, he came up with the idea, sat down, wrote out the whole concept of the game in one night. He built the prototype and tested it, that, and he tested it with us. I was probably about uh, seven or eight by the time I was playing the game full on, um, and we played that prototype amongst our family.
4: Squatter is essentially a game about the highs and lows of earning a living as a farmer and is still in production six decades after it was launched. And while the board game industry is booming with more choice than ever, Squatter has stood the test of time, having sold more than 700,000 copies since it was first published in 1962. University of Melbourne board game researcher Melissa Rogerson says Squatter's popularity remains strong at a time when thousands of games come out a year.
1: So... For a long time, we could easily say it was the most successful Australian board game. Um, and
0: what really stands out about it is its longevity, right?
1: That it, it was published in uh, 1962, I think. Board games do extremely well. There are thousands of new board games published every year. So it's very easy to sink in that in that sea of new board game.
5: Each
4: player starts with a sheep station, made up of five natural pasture paddocks. The first player to irrigate all their paddocks and to be fully stocked with sheep wins. Bob wanted the game to be fun, but also an educational tool for farmers on the latest in agricultural practice. National Wool Museum director Padraig Fisher says perhaps squatter's biggest impact is to give the wider community an insight into farming, but the game is also an important cultural artefact.
2: But in terms of its place within the Australian psyche, I think it's also important. Um, You know, 20 years ago, if you had surveyed Australians, the preponderance of them, you know, more than 75% would have had some kind of direct association with something agricultural. But today, I, I would think that that statistic is flipped. But it also holds on to parts of Australian culture that, may have disappeared or may be thinning a little bit. You know, it, it references language like Australian vernacular and Aussieisms like like um, Tucker Bag, uh, you know, so it keeps those kinds of uniquely Australian, you know, Australiana alive.
4: But really, Squatter became Bob's ode to Australian farming and those long days on his in-law's property.
5: When he lived on uh, my grandparents' property, he said one of the things he enjoyed the most, he had a horse, he was given a horse, he'd never ridden a horse before he got onto that farm, but his one of his daily jobs was to ride the boundary of a 300-acre property and to check on the livestock. So, And um, he said he, he enjoyed that
1: time more than anything else, and he really loved... The rural community. Richard Lloyd, son of squatter board game inventor Bob Lloyd, speaking with our reporter Connor Burke. And that wraps up Australia wide for this Wednesday. I'm Sinead Mangan. I hope you're having a lovely evening. Cheerio.
0: ABC Listen.